Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're turning uh, to the Old Testament this evening, uh, to Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, you'll find our reading on pages 571 over into 572 of the Blue Pew Bibles. Uh, always helpful to follow along uh, with the Bible reading, both during the Bible reading, but also then during the sermon as well. And uh, our Pew Bibles are well used, and it's always great for me to hear the sound of the the pages flicking as you turn that up. So we're turning to Isaiah 7 tonight, at pages 571 over into 572. Uh, tonight we're reading Isaiah 7, 1 to 17. And uh, this is God's word to us. So Isaiah 7, beginning at verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with, with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake in the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and said to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smouldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves." and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 7. You'll find that passage on pages 571 over into 572 of the Pew Bibles. And we'll pray together as you're looking that passage up. <coughs> Father, we thank you that Jesus is the Lord of history. And we thank you that he has given us his word and we pray that as we consider the word of the Lord of history, that you might help us to understand it. Some of the things we're going to consider tonight 
may seem distant and far removed from us, but we thank you that your word is living and active and speaks to us, and we pray that you would speak to us tonight by your spirit. We pray that you would come to all of us and challenge us and to convict us and to mold us and shape us to be more like our Savior and to trust him more and to be drawn closer to him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, having considered Matthew's genealogy this morning, we're going to turn to Isaiah 7 tonight and consider the Old Testament context of what comes after Matthew's genealogy. There's a, a beautiful promise of Emmanuel in Matthew 1 after the genealogy. And before we look at that, we need to get our bearings and understand where that promise came from originally. And that's what we're going to do tonight as we look at Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, just after 2 a.m. on the night of the 19th of September, 1910, a man called Clarence Hiller woke to the screams of his wife and daughter in their home in Chicago. There had been a number of robberies in the area and the community was on the edge. Hiller raced to see what was the matter and found an intruder in his house. There was a scuffle, the result of which Hiller and the intruder fell down the staircase. Hiller's daughter heard three shots and his wife screamed with horror. Neighbours heard the commotion and came running to the house, but the intruder escaped, leaving a dying Clarence Hiller by his front door. Now, the intruder didn't make it far. He was a man named Thomas Jennings. He had a previous criminal record and was on parole. He was found about half a mile away wearing torn and bloodied clothes and carrying a revolver. He was arrested and tried but it wasn't his clothes or the gun that were the main evidence in the trial. Those would have been enough to have him seen, uh, would have been enough to have him convicted. But the key piece of evidence was a fingerprint lifted from a freshly painted railing. He had used the railing to climb through a window at the Hiller house. Police photographed and cut the railing off itself, claiming that it would prove the identity of the intruder and therefore the murderer. And in the eyes of the court, the police were right. Thomas Jennings was convicted of the mur murder of Clarence Hiller through fingerprint evidence. What makes that story notable, though, is that Thomas Jennings was the first man to be convicted using fingerprint evidence. The jury were so convinced by the evidence that they unanim unanimously found Jennings guilty. One newspaper of the day said, the murderer of Clarence Hiller wrote his signature when he rested his hand upon the freshly painted railing at the Hiller home. Now, why have we started with that story tonight? Well, as we come to Isaiah 7, it's as though the fingerprints of Jesus Christ are all over this passage. It's as though Jesus has, has written his signature in this section of the Old Testament. In this Old Testament passage, the birth of Jesus is clearly spoken of. This evening, it's as though we're going to do an investigation of our own. A journalist called Lee Strobel has done something just like that. He has written a book called The Case for Christmas, and in it he tries to get to the bottom of the Christmas story. He writes of how his wife had become a Christian, and of how he wanted to answer the question, who was in the manger on that first Christmas morning? Towards the end of his introduction, he writes this. He says, did the Christmas child actually grow up to fulfill the attributes of God? And did the baby in Bethlehem miraculously match the prophetic fingerprint 
of the long-awaited Messiah? That's really the question we're asking tonight. Did the baby in Bethlehem match the prophetic fingerprint of the long-awaited Messiah? If you were to compare the Old Testament promises about the Messiah and the life and ministry of Jesus, would you have the same prints? We're going to see very clearly that you do. Uh, Isaiah, the part of the Bible that we've read from this evening, was the name of a prophet who lived when there was a wretched and nasty king on the throne, but he remained honest and winsome and declared the word of the Lord. Let me explain some of the politics of the time to help us understand the times in which Isaiah was preaching. God called Isaiah into the ministry in in the year King Uzziah died, which was around 740 B.C., In chapter 7, it's about 735 BC, just five years later, and the crisis of a generation is exploding on the scene. At this point in the big story of the Bible, the people of Israel had split into two separate kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom with 10 tribes known as Israel. Its capital was Samaria. And then there was the southern kingdom with two tribes known as Judah. In 2021, it was 100 years since partition and the formation of Northern Ireland. In Isaiah's day, it's about 200 years since partition, since the split. At this point, the major player in the region is Assyria. They have an empire and they're becoming more and more powerful. Assyria is flexing its muscles and reaching and grabbing and dominating. Compared to Assyria, the northern and southern kingdoms of the people of God are absolutely nothing. So the kingdom of Israel decides to join forces with a neighbor, Syria. And they want Judah to join the pact. But King Ahaz, the king of Judah, is resisting the pressure. The northern kingdom want Judah's help so badly, they're threatening to attack Judah, get rid of Ahaz, and put their own puppet king on the throne. Even as we think about that plan, it sounds as though it'll never work. And that's what Isaiah and the other prophets of the day make clear. What Isaiah is reminding the people of God of in chapter 7 is that there's no need to panic because God is with his people. One writer says that the message of this passage is that God is our true ally. He invites us to trust him, and not trusting him is a destructive choice. So that's the setting. There's this political crisis. The northern and southern kingdom are far from the Lord, but through Isaiah, God calls his people to return to him. He calls us to weigh up the evidence of who he is and what he has done, and to put our trust in him. And we're gonna do just that this evening. We're gonna weigh up the evidence, so to speak. We're gonna see two main points from Isaiah 7, and hopefully there'll be two points which will encourage us to consider trusting in Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 7, God promises you his presence, and God calls you to his side. Let's think about that first point. God promises you his presence. If you look at verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 7, you'll see that it tells us about this military alliance between, the, the, between two countries, uh, and it had Judah running scared. We read that Syria is in league with Ephraim, and that because of this, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest before the wind. You ever been in a forest on a windy day? Well, that's the picture here, that the, the trees are shaking, the, the people are shaking because of this military alliance. Judah had suffered at the hands of this alliance. You can read a bit more about that in 2 Chronicles 28. But God uses this crisis to speak to Ahaz. Isaiah goes to Ahaz with an appeal. If you look at verse 3, 
And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the, net of, a net of the, at the edge of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. One of the things we need to remember about the Old Testament is that there are some strange names in it. This passage is no different. But what's happening here is that King Ahaz is out inspecting the city's water supply because he's preparing for an invasion. And Ahaz isn't thinking about what God is going to do. He's thinking in terms of the world, in in, in the way that the world thinks. But God wants to save him. God wants to give him his presence. Isaiah's message for Ahaz is in verse 4. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Through Isaiah, God is saying to Ahaz, stay calm because these so-called superpowers are two smoldering stumps of fire. It's quite an image, two smoldering stumps of fire. Uh, Since coming to Bukna, I think I have perfected my fire-making technique. Uh, Some of you will know what I'm talking about, the technique that you use to make a great fire in your living room. Uh, We have had the fire lit a bit more regularly over the past few weeks. When it comes to lighting the fire, though, I have a fairly simple method set the fire with some newspaper and some small kindling sticks. After that, I'll tactically position some fire lighters and then add the coal, although it's very expensive at the moment. Uh, Usually that's enough to get the fire started. And once it's going, I'll add a little bit more coal, a little bit of slack, and then a nice block of wood. And normally a fire like that in our house will last for about two hours before you have to add anything more. But as that cycle comes to an end, I I always enjoy watching the block of wood break apart starts off strong, but then it gradually fades away until it breaks into pieces. It just smolders away before you. That, that, that's the image that God uses for the countries that, that Ahaz is afraid of. They're spent forces. God is saying, these two nations that are coming at you, they're headed by mere men. They will not succeed. They are like two smoldering pieces of coal or wood. They will not succeed. You, you need to trust in me. God is offering Ahaz the opportunity of a lifetime to experience and know his presence. The the Lord even offers Ahaz a sign. Ahaz doesn't really want it, but but God gives him one anyway. We're going to come to it in a moment. But the point is that God wants his people to know him. He, He wants them to experience his presence. You know, the Old Testament prophets spoke to their time, but they also spoke to the future. In Old Testament days, in Isaiah's day, God would save his people from their enemies. The name of Isaiah's son, the one mentioned in verse 3, Sheer Jashub, means a remnant shall return. In simple and perhaps even an unnoticed way, it was as though God was saying, even if the worst should happen, you will have the victory. If you trust in me, you will win. God saving his people from their enemies. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's because it's what we read later in the New Testament. Jesus comes to save us from our greatest enemy, sin and death. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through the victory of Jesus on the cross, 
God promises us his presence and he promises it forever. Trusting in him now means that God comes and lives in us by his Holy Spirit. And trusting in him now means, means the guarantee of eternal life. Everlasting joy with the creator of the universe. God promises you his presence through his son Jesus. The son who was born in the manger. The son who comes into the world in weakness. The son who was rich but who came into the poverty of this world. He makes it possible for us to know God. God is just the same as he was in Isaiah's day, seeking, calling people like Ahaz. We're going to see his response in a moment. But the message Ahaz heard is the same message we're hearing. Trust the Lord. There's no one like him. He is the only one who can give you victory. God, first of all, promises you his presence. And then secondly, we see that, that God calls you to his side. God promises you his presence and God calls you to his side. As we've hinted at already, God offers Ahaz a sign. It comes in verses 10 to 14. Let's read those verses again. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In these verses, Ahaz decides to go his own way and seals the fate of a generation. But notice how fair God is. He doesn't just give Ahaz an ultimatum and that's that. He doesn't demand that Ahaz take some leap of faith he invites Ahaz to ask for any sign, any sign he can think of, to show that God is being serious. God, ha God hands Ahaz a blank check. Imagine that happening to you. Someone, someone comes up to you and gives you a check, signed and dated, and says, write whatever amount you want on it, and you can have it. You'd take it without another thought. You'd go straight to the bank and lodge it. But Ahaz rejects God's spiritual blank check because he just doesn't want to trust him. He puts it in really nice language. He, he rejects God, God nicely. He says, I'll not ask, I'll, I'll not put the, the, the Lord to the test. He's really just saying, oh, oh no, God, th that won't be necessary. Th thank you so much for your kind offer, but I am, I am really okay. It's nice and it's courteous, but it's still rejection. D deep down, Ahaz knows that there are strings attached. If he lets God in, God will take control Ahaz simply doesn't want God interfering in his life. God is calling Ahaz to his side. He, he wants to save him, but Ahaz declines and his opportunity passes. This decision set a trajectory for Ahaz's life. He was a wicked king, and as we mentioned earlier, he's in Matthew's genealogy. This decision to reject God leads him down a broad road. We're told a little bit more about Ahaz in 2 Kings 16. Listen to what the writer of Kings says. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. 
There was a point in Ahaz's life when he shook like the trees of a forest in the wind. At that point, God spoke to him and called him to, called him to his side. But Ahaz turned his back and ended up sinning greatly under the trees. It's a dreadful thing to have God speak to you and for you to reject him. He, he may not speak again. What's all of this got to do with Christmas? Well, God decides to send a sign of his own choosing. Look at the sign God will send in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is one of the outstanding verses of the Bible, but it's tricky enough to understand. We've got to remember that the Old Testament prophets spoke to their time but also to the future. The promise Isaiah speaks here had its fulfillment in Isaiah's day, but it clearly prefigures the birth of Jesus. The DNA, the fingerprints of Jesus are all over this verse. As we've said, as Matthew begins his gospel, he begins to write about some of the history of the Old Testament. He writes of how God's presence was with his people. He writes of calling people to his side. And then Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew lifts Isaiah 7, 14 and says, this verse in Isaiah is about the Messiah. It's talking about Jesus. And it's through Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, that God calls us to his sight. We need to understand this Christmas time that Emmanuel cannot be ignored. Political crises come and go. We see them all the time. They came and went in Isaiah's day. They'll come and go in our day. But God has gone into, the great, into battle with our greatest enemies, sin and death, and he has overcome them. Well, what does all of this mean for us as we sit here tonight, as we meet together here tonight? Well, well some of us are, are a little bit weary as we approach Christmas and the end of another year. Some of us are a bit downhearted and discouraged. Isaiah calls us to trust the Lord again now, today, to renew our faith and confidence in him. Did you notice what verse 9 says? Look at verse 9 again. It says, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. If you're not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. What is that verse saying? I think it's saying something like this. It's saying, lean on the Lord and you will stand, but treat him as irrelevant, and you will become irrelevant. It's really easy for us to think that we only need God in the bad times of life, but God offers himself to us as our greatest ally at all times. He promises his presence to us and calls us to his side. So some of us maybe need to reevaluate how we're living, to think about the rule that Emmanuel has over us, he cannot be ignored, and he must be allowed into every department. Nothing is to be off limits. It would be worth asking ourselves, how firm am I in the faith? Am I as firm in the faith as I was this time last year, or have things changed? If that's the case, if things have changed, then hear the message of this passage. God promises you his presence, and God calls you to his sight. Let me finish with one final thought. Ahaz is a really interesting character. He, he, he toys with religion, but he doesn't acknowledge God for who he really is. In this part of Isaiah, 
we read about the defining moment of Ahaz's life. 700 years before Jesus was born, Ahaz had a, had a decision to make. Does he trust God or does he ignore him? Look at what he does. Look at what happens. There was a point in his life when he shook like trees in a forest in a, on, on a windy day. But the windy day passed and he thought that he knew best. He ignored God and went his own way. 2,000 years after Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, you have a decision to make if you're not a Christian. What will it be? Ahaz's decision was one that ruined him, absolutely ruined him. He goes down the road of destruction. Surely as you read this passage, as you think about the Christmas story, surely your decision will be different. Do you see how foolish Ahaz is? He eventually became a smouldering stump himself, like a smouldering stump on a fire that's burning away. But Jesus really saves. God has, has come near. Emmanuel is with us and he promises his presence and calls us to his side. Will, will you come near to Emmanuel this Christmas? Will you trust in him? We, we've done some investigating tonight. And I think what we've seen is that Jesus is the real deal. He meets our need. He, he does it humbly. He wants to bless us. You know, you can hear and look at the evidence, but you can spend too long doing that. It is possible to think long and hard about trusting in Christ, but never actually getting around to doing it. Don't make that mistake this Christmas. As we probe the, the fingerprint evidence of Jesus tonight in the Old Testament, make sure you trust him. But also know that if you reject him, even nicely, it's still rejection. And that's a destructive choice. That's Isaiah 7 then. That's the Old Testament context of the promise that Matthew points us to in Matthew chapter 1. It's a complicated political situation in Isaiah 7. There's a wretched and nasty king. There's an honest and winsome prophet but it also speaks to us of a gracious and merciful God. And this evening, that same God promises you his presence and calls you to his side. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, God who has come among us, and we thank you that when we trust in him, we have the promise of his presence with us forever. And we thank you that he will always be our side and that he will never leave us once we have believed in him and repented of our sins. Father, as we, as we consider this distant passage tonight, we pray that we wouldn't fall into the trap of responding like Ahaz. Help us to have the eyes and the heart of faith Help us to follow Emmanuel, to give our lives to him. And may you help us to be firm in the faith. Help us to renew our commitment to the Lord Jesus tonight. And we pray that for those who don't know Jesus, that they might come to trust him for the first time. We thank you for your word. Bless it to all of our hearts. And we pray these things in Emmanuel's name. Amen.